we have been looking at, in this series, we've been talking about the, the various prophecies of, of Isaiah. Um, and I said the last two weeks, uh, Isaiah is writing, and I want you to keep this in mind. If you are a history person at all, um, if you like history, the first portion of this message you might, you might really enjoy. If you hate history, don't tune me out yet, all right? If you're not a history person, if you're more of a, you know, a, an English person, math person, and you don't like history, then, then just stay with me for a few moments um, because I, I believe this is a, a word that uh, God really wants to speak to us all about this morning. But I need to kind of set the stage, the context for us in order to understand the message of Isaiah in chapter 40, we really have to understand the context of what's taking place, what he's writing about, who he's writing to. And so I want you to keep in mind again, uh, the prophet Isaiah is writing 700 years before the birth of Christ, all right? And the events, though, that he is writing about, what's very interesting in Isaiah chapter 40 is Isaiah is writing about a time that has not yet occurred. When we read these words in Isaiah 40, and we'll read them here in just a few moments, he is writing about an event or a time that's going to occur in Israel's history that, that hasn't yet happened. It's about 110 or, or just over 100 years away before these events actually unfold. But the prophetic message of Isaiah was penned around 700 B.C., um, I know that's hard for our minds to, to grasp and to fully understand, um, but, but I, I think that we'll, we'll get kind of a picture and a better understanding of that here in just a moment. Uh, Isaiah 40, our passage of focus, was actually written to and for the people of God while they were in Babylonian exile. Uh, I put these things up here for you because if you're not a history person, if you don't like dates and, and, and once you start thinking about time frame, if you get all um, bent out of shape, I want to help you. So I've put this up on the screen for you to kind of understand um, what's going on here in Isaiah chapter 40? What are the events that are unfolding? When is Isaiah writing? What is he writing about? And so again, Isaiah wrote in 700 BC, but the Babylonian exile, which is what he is writing about in chapter 40, that isn't gonna even take place until 586 BC. So over a hundred years before this event even unfolds, Isaiah is pinning these words in Isaiah chapter 40. Here's some major, there's no test, no exam, okay? Don't, I'm, you don't, it's not like you have to know these in order to get out the door today, all right? I don't want you to think that. Um, but um, just, just for your frame of reference, so you have a kind of an idea of what's taking place. In 722 BC, um, I, I talked about two different nations. There's the nation of Assyria, and there's the nation of Babylon, those were two of the, the primary enemies of God's people. Um, Assyria was a dominant power for a, for a season. Um, and then eventually Babylon will come in and destroy Assyria. But Assyria um, will actually destroy Israel. The capital city of Israel was Samaria. And in 722 BC, Assyria comes in and they destroy Israel, the northern kingdom, the, the 10 northern tribes uh, were, were a part of Israel, and they were destroyed by Assyria in 722 BC. And then in about 700 BC, Isaiah begins to prophesy, and he speaks of a time that is coming. He's, he actually prophesies about an exile that's going to occur for the people of God. 
Now you can imagine if you are in if you are alive during Isaiah's day when you begin to hear and read the words of Isaiah about a time that's coming where where God's people are going to be in exile you're probably going to laugh at him probably be a little bit frustrated that he would even pen those words but we're going to see that over 100 years later those those words that he writes um, they become a reality for God's people 586 BC, then Babylon will actually destroy Judah. Capital city of Judah was Jerusalem. And so it was in 586 BC that Jerusalem's destroyed. That's when the temple, the temple was destroyed. It was burned down. If you read the book of Lamentations written by Jeremiah, it's a picture of Jeremiah walking through the, the ruins of Jerusalem and, and, and really, Lamentations is a, is a lament he is crying over or sad about the state or the condition of Jerusalem, of the city of God, because it had been destroyed by Babylon. Um, if you know anything about Babylon, there's, there's maybe a king that you might be familiar with, King Nebuchadnezzar. Again, don't have to remember that. But if you know the story of, uh, of Daniel... Um, you know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the, the three Hebrew boys that were thrown into a fiery furnace. The king in that day was King Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon. So just to kind of give you uh, a frame of reference. So in Isaiah chapter 40, which is our, our passage of focus, which we'll read here in just a moment, it was written to and it was written for the people of God while they were in captivity. So Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40 is written for God's people because Isaiah knows, and it, that word was given to him by the Lord, Isaiah knows that there is a day coming when God's people are going to be in captivity. They're going to be outside of the city of Jerusalem. They're going to be outside of Judah. They're going to be carried away into captivity by Babylon, and they're going to spend 70 years in exile. And knowing that that day is coming, Isaiah pins these words in 700 BC in Isaiah chapter 40. He, he pins words that are going to provide comfort, that are going to provide peace for a group of people that feel like all hope is lost. So Isaiah wrote in 700 BC, but the Babylonian exile would not occur until 586 BC. The exile was when Jerusalem was destroyed. By Babylon, the temple had been burned down and the people of Judah, they were, they were taken captive. They were taken out of their city and they were relocated to other places in, in areas where Babylon reigned and ruled. Um, uh, just to kind of give you a picture of this, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, I want to read just a few verses to you. It's up on the screen. So the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. This is referring to the exile, referring to the captivity of God's people. The Babylonians killed Judah's young men, even chasing after them into the temple. They had no pity on the people, killing both young men and young women, the old and the infirm. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. The king took home to Babylon all the articles, large and small, used in the temple of God and the treasures from both the Lord's temple and from the palace of the king and his officials. Then his army burned the temple of God, tore the walls of Jerusalem, burned all the palaces, and completely destroyed everything of value. So I want you to get this picture. In 586 BC, um, Nebuchadnezzar and his army, they, they march into the city of Jerusalem. The capital city is really the, the last thing standing at this point. They march into the city of Jerusalem. They tear down the walls of Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. And what Babylon does, 
um, what, what, what that nation does is they will go into the temple and they take out all of the articles, all of the, um, all of the objects that, that are sacred, that, that were placed in very specific positions in the temple. The king of Babylon will send his army into the temple to bring all of those articles out. They steal them, they take them, and they go back to their city and they, they store them in their nation, in their place of location. And so that's what happens. The city is destroyed. The walls have been torn down. They burn the temple down. And I want you to understand how, how significant that was because the temple was the place where God's people would gather to worship. That's, that's the place that, that housed the, the, the presence of God. And so the very place of worship was destroyed and now God's people are taken out of this, this holy city, the city of Jerusalem, and they are taken into captivity. And I, I say all of that because I want to paint this morning a picture for you. I want to paint a picture of the state or the condition of God's people during the 70 years of exile. I want you, I want you for a moment, if you can, I'm not going to ask you to close your eyes for, because if I do that, you might fall asleep. So uh, I don't want you to do that. <clears throat> but I want you for a moment uh, to, to imagine with me the state of God's people during this exile. I want you to understand the significance of what occurred when Jerusalem was destroyed and when God's people were taken captive. So I want to kind of paint that picture for you this morning. First of all, it, it's very evident that this group of people wrestled internally with shame and personal disappointment. When, when they are taken from the city of Jerusalem and they are relocated to some, to some location, some city in the region of Babylon, they are wrestling with, the, at this point in their life, they are wrestling with shame and personal disappointment. Why? Because they are in exile and captivity, not because of anything God did, not because of anything really Babylon did. They are in captivity because of their failures, because of their rebellion, because of their rejection of God's commands. Look at, look at uh, 2 Kings chapter 21. It'll be up on the screen. Look at this, what it says. So this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I will bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of those who hear about it will tingle with horror. I will judge Jerusalem by the same standard I used for Samaria and the same measure I used for the family of Ahab, I will wipe away the people of Jerusalem as one wipes away a dish and turns it upside down. Then I will reject even the remnant of my own people who are left and I will hand them over as plunder for their enemies for they have done. Look at verse 15. So, so God, is, God is speaking here in 2 Kings. This is before, before Jerusalem is destroyed, but God is speaking about a day, is, a day that is coming when he is going to judge the city of Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to wipe them away. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to burn down the city. And, and this is all a form of God's judgment. And why does this happen? Verse 15, for they have done great evil in my sight and have angered me ever since their ancestors came out of Egypt. If you follow the story of God's people, if you go all the way back to, to the book of Exodus, um, you will see uh, some people really like to focus on the judgment of God in the Old Testament, but if you follow God's people throughout the Old Testament, you will see very quickly that God is a God of grace. God is a God of second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth, however many chances you want to think about. Because if you follow Israel through, through the book of Exodus, all the way through Deuteronomy, into Joshua and Judges, they mess up time after time after time again 
yet God still pours out his grace upon them. Uh, He gives them a second chance and a third chance. But we see here in verse 15, he is speaking about a day that is coming. And so, so I want you to imagine the shame and the personal disappointment because now they're sitting, they're sitting in Babylon. And, and, and they're outside of the holy city. No longer are they in Jerusalem where the temple was. The temple's been destroyed. It's been burned down. The walls of this great city have been destroyed. And now they are in captivity because of their own doing. Imagine just for a second the shame and, and, and the personal disappointment they must have felt as they, as they woke up every single morning. Day one of captivity. Day two of captivity, day three, day four, year seven, year 10, year 20, year 50. Imagine, imagine the disappointment they must have felt. They are in captivity, not because of what God did or because of his lack of grace. They're in captivity because of their own doing, their sin, their rebellion and rejection of God's ways and his commandments brought up on them this devastating blow. They also, what's very interesting is, and I want you again, I'm painting this picture for you. This group of people, when they were in captivity, they were convinced that they were outside of God's vision. They were convinced that God no longer saw them or, or, or was able to hear them or, or was able to understand their struggles. When they were in captivity, they feared the reality that God was outside of their vision and that God no longer saw their struggles. God no longer heard their cries. That was their fear. They're in captivity. They're outside of the city of Jerusalem. They're no longer in the place where people gather for worship. And so now in their minds and their hearts, they're wrestling with this idea, does God even hear us? Does God, does God even know our struggles? And imagine, you know, maybe for a year, you might still think that, okay, maybe God's still present. But when you get to year 69, and, and there's no change and you're still in captivity, imagine what they wrestled with. Imagine uh, the, the doubts and the struggles that they had as they realized maybe we are outside. Maybe we've messed up so bad that we are now outside of God's ability to see our struggles and hear our cries. We know this because in our text, and I'll read it fully here in a few moments, but in chapter 40, verse 27, It says, oh, Jacob, how can you say the Lord does not see your troubles? So so obviously they were saying that because the response is, oh, Jacob, oh, Israel, how can you say? How can you say that the Lord does not see your troubles? And how can you say God ignores your rights? So it's, it's obviously clear that this is something they were wrestling with. They obviously were at a point in their life where they thought God no longer saw their struggles. They were at a place in their life where they obviously thought that God no longer heard their cries. That's why Isaiah will write these words, O Jacob, how can you say that the Lord does not see your troubles? O Israel, how can you say God ignores your rights? We'll look at more of that here in just a moment. They were convinced that they were outside of God's vision. While in captivity, they feared that God could not see their struggles and he had turned away from them because of their wickedness. Uh, Imagine for just a moment, put yourself in their shoes, 70 years in exile, in captivity. Some of us in this room aren't even 70 yet. Um, If you are, don't raise your hand, all right? That's okay, all right? Um, but, But for 70 years, they are in captivity. Imagine they're wrestling with this thought, does God even hear us any longer? Has God given up on us? They cried out to the Lord 
while in exile requesting him to remember his covenant and to respond to their cries. Look, look at this, uh, there, uh, Psalm chapter 74. Um, there are several psalms um, that, that can be deemed psalms of captivity, cries of God's people while they are in exile. This is one of them. Look at Psalm 74. Oh God, why have you rejected us so long? Why is your anger so intense against the sheep of your own pasture? So imagine somebody, uh, 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 one of the Jews, sitting in exile, in captivity, in Babylon, and, and this is the prayer. This is the cry of the person in captivity. Why have you rejected us so long? Why is your anger so intense against the sheep of your own pasture? Remember, remember, the psalmist says, remember that we are the people you chose long ago. So, so they're, they're in captivity and they're crying out to God and they're saying, God, remember us. We're the ones that you chose. You know, we're the children of Abraham. We're the ones that, that you called and set apart long ago, the tribe that you redeemed as your own special possession. So to be rescued from their captivity and receive relief from their struggles, that whole concept seemed out of reach for God's people. They were wrestling with this question, were they truly outside of God's vision? Again, year one, maybe, maybe they still held on to a little bit of hope. <laughs> maybe year five, they were still hoping for relief, still hoping that God would hear their prayer, but I guarantee you, for many of them, and we know even after they come out of captivity, um, the remnant became much smaller. There were some that held on to hope, but many felt like they were outside of God's vision. We also know that these individuals that were in captivity, they lost their passion for worship and for God's presence. Again, imagine um, the temple, the place where they would go to worship on a regular basis. The temple was burned down to the ground. And not only that, they couldn't even get to the city in the first place because they'd been taken outside of Jerusalem and relocated to some place within Babylon. The articles of the temple were stolen by Babylon and taken outside of the holy city. During their, during their captivity, for many of them, they discontinued the worship customs and the festivals that they once celebrated. We know this because when they come out of exile, when they are allowed to go back to the city of Jerusalem, you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, um, Nehemiah will lead a group of people. And what do they do? They start rebuilding uh, the walls of the temple. They start rebuilding or the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Um, Ezra, one of the things he will do is he will come and he will begin reading the word of the Lord before the people. And one of the very first things they do when they come out of captivity into the city of Jerusalem is they build an altar where they can once again begin to worship to the Lord. So there is a sense that during their captivity, they lost their fervor, their passion for worship, and they discontinued their festivals and their customs of worship. They lost their sense of spiritual order and fervor. They became spiritually dead and were convinced they had run out of chances with God. The question that's running through their mind, and, and I would suggest to you today, maybe there's some of us in this room that have asked this very same question. Has God's grace run out on me? Maybe you've been in that boat before. Maybe you've been in not necessarily physical captivity, but some form of spiritual captivity where you feel like, and you ask these very same questions, how long are you gonna uh, forget me? Where are you, God? Maybe you've asked the question and you thought to yourself, has God's grace, after I've messed up time after time after time, finally run out. That's what's going through the mind of these people. They became spiritually dead, and I think many of them have become convinced 
that they had run out of chances with God, that his grace had finally run out. They were slaves once again to their enemy. Babylon was one of their primary enemies. The very, the very group of people that they tried to fight against, they became slaves to, and they were in captivity to them. God now seemed completely out of reach, and there was a sense for these people of complete abandonment. Yet, when we get to Isaiah chapter 40, again, when Isaiah writes these words in Isaiah 40, this, this event, the exile, hasn't even happened yet. It's not going to happen for another 110, 115 years when he writes the words in Isaiah 40. But Isaiah 40 was meant for a group of people that were in captivity. It was meant for a group of people that felt like God was out of reach. It was meant for a group of people that felt like God's grace had run out. Isaiah knew, God knew, and he gave the words to Isaiah. God knew that this group of people would be sitting in in captivity, longing for a response from God. Therefore, God instructed Isaiah to pin these words in Isaiah 40 over 100 years earlier, promising not complete defeat nor utter, utter abandonment, but instead he promised comfort in the midst of their captivity. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Isaiah chapter 40. I think it's also up on the screen. I just want to read the first 11 verses. And, and I did this intentionally. I want you to understand the condition and the position of God's people in captivity. I want you to know where they are at, the, the, the wrestling that's going on in their mind, physically and spiritually and emotionally, as they struggle, is God out of reach? Does he hear us when we cry out to him? Does he hear our prayers? Um, is he going to bring us relief? That's the position that these people are in. And while in captivity, I don't know how it occurred. I don't know if they had a page of, of, of Isaiah 40. Um, if they had the scroll available to them or if somebody remembered the words of the, the prophet Isaiah over a hundred years before, but these are the words that would bring great relief, great peace, great comfort to God's people in captivity. So I want you to hear these words now, understanding the position of God's people. Look at chapter 40, beginning in verse one. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her, and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all her sins. Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. A voice said, shout. I asked, what should I shout? Shout that people are like the grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in a field. The grass withers and the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord. And so it is with people. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of the Lord stands forever. O Zion, Messenger of good news, shout from the mountaintops. Shout it louder, O Jerusalem. Shout and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah, your God is coming. Now, how many would like to hear that word? If you are in captivity, they've been in captivity now for many, many years, and they hear these words penned by Isaiah over a hundred years earlier. Your God is coming. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Verse 10, yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. 
He will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. Verse 11, he will feed his flock like a shepherd and he will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. And he will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. Uh, Andrew read in our opening call to worship um, in Mark chapter one, uh, the text where John the Baptist um, is, is the forerunner, the one preparing the way for the Lord to come. We read that in Mark chapter one, which actually comes from Isaiah chapter 40. So imagine hearing these words, meditating on these words in captivity, words of great hope rung true in the midst of their captivity and their exile. Now, sometimes I want to transition just for a moment this morning. Sometimes I think we feel like Judah in captivity, in Babylonian exile. The circumstances maybe of our lives lead us to ask questions that they very likely ask themselves. Where is God? Has God forgotten me? Did God give up on me and move on? Does God even see my, my struggle, my pain, and my heartache? Have I messed up too many times that the grace of God has run out? Or what hope is there for me and my family? The very struggles that, that, that Israel or Judah encountered while in spiritual uh, captivity, the very questions they asked, I would suggest to you, probably some of us in this room, maybe all of us at some point in our, in our life, in a very deep struggle, difficult circumstance, have asked those questions, God, where are you? Do you hear me when I cry out to you? Do you see my struggles? Am I too far outside your vision for you to hear me and see what I'm going through? The words recorded by Isaiah for those in captivity are for us today in our captivity as well. These words in Isaiah chapter 40, when, when Isaiah writes these words, comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. Those are words not just meant for those in Babylonian captivity. But those are words for us as well in our own spiritual, emotional, physical captivity. The beautiful promise that we have from, in Scripture is that we have a comforter who has come to bring us relief, to bring us peace, to, to, to draw near to us so that we can draw near to him. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins have been pardoned. The promise of comfort comes to us, and I want you to hear this this morning. The promise of comfort, relief, peace, comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The child that was born of the Virgin Mary who would take away the sins of the world. That's how comfort has come to you and to me. And so when we ask these questions, does God hear us when we pray? Does God see my struggles? Is he near to me? Am I outside of his vision? The, the, the truth and the promise is he is very near to us. He does hear us when we cry out to him. He does hear our prayers. He does hear our cries. And we are not outside of God's ability to see our struggles. And let me also say this morning, God's grace does not run out. I'm thankful for the grace of God that he has poured out upon us. Because God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus and then gave us the Holy Spirit to live inside of you and me, we can have confidence of, three things this morning. I want to just share these with you briefly and then we'll be done. 
Number one, we can be confident that our comforter sees our struggles, amen? We can be confident that he sees our struggles, he knows our pain, he knows our circumstances. Um, God heard, if, if you go all the way back to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter two, God's people are in slavery. They've been in slavery for 400 years, 430 years. They're in slavery, they're in captivity, and, and they're crying out to God. Exodus chapter two, the last two verses, verses 24 and 25, they cry out to the Lord for deliverance, and it says that God heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant, and then what did God do? God sent Israel a deliverer. He sent them Moses to come and to set the people free. We also know that God saw the emptiness of those in Babylonian captivity. Yes, they were in exile for 70 years, but God saw their struggle. He knew their pain. He knew their heartache. And what does he do? A decree is issued by King Darius of Persia, or Cyrus, sorry, King Cyrus of Persia. A decree is issued that says you are allowed to go back to the city of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah will take a group of people and they go and they, they start to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They go back and they rebuild the temple and they uh, construct altars and they begin to worship the Lord again. God saw their struggles and he responded to the cry. He recognized. One of the most beautiful pictures of the comforter seeing our struggles is that God recognized the separation that existed between a holy God and an unholy, sinful humanity. And when God saw that struggle, when God saw the gap or the chasm that existed between a holy God and an unholy sinful people, God responded to that struggle. He responded by the sending of his son Jesus Christ to come and take on human flesh so that we could then have relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, there is no way to the Father. That's why in John, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. We come to the Father through him. He recognized, he saw the struggle, the, the, the chasm and the distance that existed between humanity and God, and God responded by the sending of his son, Jesus. And the same is true for all of us today. I can tell you with confidence and assurance that God sees your struggle. You may not know the struggle of the person sitting next to you this morning. I may not know your struggle. Your family may not know your struggle. But I can say with confidence and assurance this morning, God sees and God knows. And because of that, he is ready to respond. You are not out of reach of God's vision. He has not forgotten you. Instead, he longs to comfort you and bring you peace. Psalm 34, verse 15, the psalmist says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. He hears us. And let me tell you this morning, let me just be real, real pastoral. There may be moments where you cry out to God, you pray to him, and, and maybe you are, you are just literally giving him your, your all and you don't hear a thing or you don't feel anything and the reality is sometimes we don't always feel. Sometimes we don't always hear. But I can tell you based on the word of the Lord, his word is true. And because his word is true, I can say with confidence this morning that even when it seems like God is at a distance, God oftentimes is very, very near to us. 
And so I want you to hear that this morning because I know there have been times where I've prayed or times where I've cried out to God and it feels like he is not there, that he's distant. The reality is sometimes we have to go back to what we know is true and we believe that the word of God is true and because of that, we know that he is near, that he is with us, that he has not abandoned us nor has he forsaken us. I wanna just read a, a story to you. Proverbs 31 Ministries captures this story that I believe captures this truth very beautifully. For months, uh, this person said, I prayed the same prayers, yet they seemed to go unanswered. So each time I spoke to God, I made sure he hadn't forgotten by reminding him constantly of my needs and desires. I felt he had a right to know I was still anxiously waiting for him to act and that honestly, I was getting a little annoyed at his seeming lack of swift action and attention. Anybody, anybody been there before? <laughs> uh, we, we want God to move on our time schedule, right? Uh, we have a plan and we want him to respond to our plan. And he said, have mercy. As I laid my head to rest one night after yet another exhausting, discouraging day, I finally asked the questions we all may be secretly tempted to ask when our circumstances don't improve and our problems keep piling up. Here's the question. He said, do you see me, Lord? Do you even hear what I'm saying? Do you know what's happening? Then moments later, this individual said, I drifted off to sleep. Few hours into the quiet darkness of the night, I abruptly awoke. There were no loud, creepy sounds coming from another room and no startling thunder or lightning outside that would have interrupted my sleep. Total silence, except for a persistent musical rhythm dancing through my mind. I recognized the tune, but hadn't heard it in quite some time. So it took my sleepy mind a couple of minutes to figure it out. When the lyrics of the song finally came flowing into my mind, tears filled my eyes. The song title, He Knows, by Jeremy Camp. Here are the lyrics. He knows every hurt and every sting. He has walked the suffering. Let your burdens come undone. Lift your eyes up to the one who knows. He knows. God had gently pulled me out of a deep sleep because he had something simple yet so important to tell me. He does see me. He does hear my prayers and he does care and above all, he knows. My heart quickened at the thought of hearing from my heavenly father in such a sweet and gentle way in the midst of running the universe, God saw fit to remind me that just because I didn't yet know how he was at work in my situations didn't mean he didn't know exactly what was happening. As the sun began to rise, I reached for my Bible and looked for verses about God's attentiveness to our lives. And I came across today's key verse that reminds us, even when we think God isn't watching, he sees us. And when we think he isn't listening, he hears our prayers. Scripture tells us in Hebrews 4, verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. There isn't a day or a tear that God doesn't know about. He sees whatever we're going through, and he knows. Number two, our comforter searches for trusting hearts. We can have confidence that our comforter searches for trusting hearts. Read this in Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not heard? Have you never heard? Have you never understood the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth? He never grows weary or weak. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. Even youths will become weak and tired and young men will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust or those who wait on the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. 
We see here in this text that Isaiah anticipated the attitude of the exiles who thought they were outside of God's vision for them or God had given up on them. Verse 27, just the verse before, is where they will say, has God, has God uh, no longer seen our struggles or our troubles? Has he forgotten us? And so in verse 28, um, Isaiah will respond with these words of the Lord. Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting creator or everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. So anticipating their attitude, Isaiah reminds them of God's character. He says to them, God is the creator, the all-wise, all-powerful, willing to share all of this with the weak and the weary. Therefore, he is calling the exiles, he's calling them to trust. Trust in him to solve their problems and not run ahead and try to solve it themselves. Um, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, um, but I, I, I will say myself, I'm one of those that tries to and likes to solve the problem myself. Um, if there's an issue, if there's a concern, um, I don't know if it's just because I feel like I can do it better than somebody else or I know the issue better than somebody else, but uh, I think that sometimes it's just human nature. We try to solve something ourselves on our own terms by our own standards instead of trusting in God. That's what got Israel into trouble in the first place. A couple of weeks ago, you remember the very first sermon in Advent, we talked about, um, we talked about King Ahaz. Uh, we talked about King Ahab. We talked about different kings and they trusted in who? They trusted in their enemy um, to bring them relief and freedom instead of trusting in God. And when we trust in somebody else or something else, rather than trusting in God, that oftentimes gets us into trouble. And so he knows their attitude. He knows their questions, which is why he will then respond, have you never heard? Have you, have you never understood? This is, we're talking about the creator of the universe. He never grows tired, never grows weak or weary. And he wants to share that with us. He, he gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. No matter how bleak our circumstances may be, God is still searching for trusting hearts that recognize that there are no limits on what God can do for me. There are no limits on what God can do for you, for your family, um, for your, your children or your spouses. We serve a God that, and I think, I think, again, human nature, we have this tendency to want to kind of put God in a box. We want to limit God. God, I, I know you can do this, but what about this? God, I, I know you can come through here, but this seems really too far out of reach for you. We have a tendency to put God into a box to limit what he is able to do. He is the creator of the universe. By a single word, he spoke the universe into existence. And if he can do that, who are we to say that he can't respond to whatever circumstance that we may be walking through, whatever captivity we may be in? God can set us free. God can bring comfort, peace, and relief. He is the creator of the universe. He does not grow tired, weak, or weary, and he gives strength to the powerless. We serve an awesome and mighty God, and he is looking. He is just simply looking. We see this in Isaiah 40. He is longing for trusting hearts. Trust me. Yes, you're in captivity, but still, trust me, because I am the creator of the universe, and I know your struggle, and I hear your cry. So the question is, am I trusting him to bring comfort and relief, or am I trying to solve the problem myself? And finally, number three, again, because Jesus has come, 
took on human flesh, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He, he took on human flesh, was born to the Virgin Mary. We can have confidence that today our comforter stays by our side. He never leaves us. Uh, you may have heard us pray that way before. You can read it in scripture. You can read it in, in Hebrews chapter 13. You can read it in the Old Testament as well in Joshua, um, several places in Deuteronomy. I think Deuteronomy 31 verse 9 um, the promise that God will never leave us nor forsake us. Uh, in exile, the people of God, they felt alone, but God didn't leave them. He would eventually bring them out of exile. Israel, who was about to embark upon the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 31, just before Moses died and Joshua took over the reins of leadership, um, he's gonna speak to, to Joshua. And one of the promises that he gives Joshua is for him not to fear, but to remember that he is not gonna leave him, nor is he going to forsake him. There are seasons, and, and many of us can probably attest to this, there are seasons where God seems like he's at a distance. He seems like he's far off. There are times probably in, in your life that you've really wrestled, is God even here? You've asked those questions. Am I too far gone or too far outside of God's vision for him to respond? But let me encourage you and remind you, the comforter always stays by our side. I wanna read Psalm 13 to you. You don't have to turn there. I just want you to hear the words of this psalm. Uh, I, I shared this with, with an individual who was going through a very, very, difficult, dark season in their life. And they were asking these questions, God, where are you? Are you near? Are you gone? Have you given up on me? Because this person had given up on themselves. But I want you to hear what the psalmist says in Psalm 13. It's only six verses long. First four verses capture the struggle of the psalmist. Verse one, O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord, my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. So the psalmist is asking those questions. Have you forgotten me? Where are you, God? Are you distant? Are you too far off? And then look at the last two verses, verse five, but... I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me and I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. The psalmist asked the questions, God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? We will very likely ask those very same questions. God, uh, have you, are, are you there? Um, have you forgotten me? Have you given up on me? But we always have to go back to what we know is true. But the psalmist says, I trust in your unfailing love because you have rescued me and I will sing to the Lord for he is good to me. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He reassures us that we are safe in his care. I want to end with this, this story. Um, in the Middle East, when there were several uprisings, uh, there was a missionary um, that was overseas during this time in the Middle East, and, and there were gunshots going off and, and people in battle and people fighting, and, and there's just a lot of unrest and, and never any stability and there was a missionary that was living in the midst of all of this. And during that time, it was very interesting because this missionary, when, 
when gunshots would be fired or unrest or all of this, this um, chaos was occurring, the missionary would kind of sit back and watch at a distance. And he watched as a very specific shepherd cared for his flock. This was a group of sheep that happened to be near um, the gunfire, near the unrest. And, and the missionary was watching very intently as the shepherd cared for his flock of sheep near the area where the gunfire was going off. And what was interesting to this missionary was that every time that shots rang out, the sheep would begin to, to scatter. Uh, I mean, you, you can imagine the, the, the fear, um, the sound um, that would scatter the sheep very quickly. I mean, we would probably do the same. If we hear gunshots fired, the, the, the tendency is for us to scatter. But the missionary watched very intently. As gunshots were fired, the sheep began to scatter. The shepherd then would go toward his sheep, and he would touch each of the sheep with his staff, and he spoke calmly to them. And in that moment, they settled down immediately. When, when the staff of the shepherd touched the back of the sheep's, and when that shepherd spoke calmly and, and in a comforting voice to that sheep, it brought back order, peace to those that had been scattered. What does the psalmist say? Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me thy rod and thy staff. They comfort me. And we know... Fast forward all the way to the Gospels, the Gospel of John. Jesus, he is called what? The Great Shepherd. And so when it feels like that we are outside of God's reach, we feel like that he doesn't hear our struggles, and we, when we begin to scatter, we are fearful and we're in captivity. The shepherd, let me remind you and encourage you this morning, the shepherd is putting his staff on your back, and he is speaking calmly to you today bringing you comfort.